You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Sports Podcast. It is Monday, May 2022. And as Justin Timberlake said, it's going to be May, baby. It's going to be May. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hope everybody's ready for what I think is a fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start with the NFL draft, but I think what we're going to do is it do, do things from a little bit of a different perspective. Rather than go through rounds two and three and four and five, six, seven, what we're going to do is look at the NFL draft from the college perspective, because now that the draft is done, I think you can start to look at this program had this many draft picks, this conference had that many draft picks, and start to piece together a story about college football, which I think is interesting. We'll talk about Georgia and Texas and LSU and the winners and losers really from the college perspective, what it meant for this past season and what it may mean for the future of college football. Really fun segment I think you guys and girls will enjoy. From there, we'll switch gears to the biggest actual on-the-field college football conversation, which was, did you see... This Lincoln Riley, Jordan Addison thing that happened this weekend. Jordan Addison, maybe the top wide receiver in college football that was coming back next season, was expected to return to Pitt. Then we find out on Friday he may hit the portal, and if he hits the portal, he may end up at USC. Just the perfect storm of NIL, transfer, tampering, all that good stuff. I know I've done a lot of these negative stories on tampering, college football, all that, but I do think it's important to have these conversations and also discuss when we get a new president by the from the NCAA, what can actually be done. We'll wrap with a little college hoops. Uh, Jay Lucas, assistant coach at Kentucky, headed to Duke. Not a very good sign for Kentucky. Uh, also on top of that, uh, Auburn picking up a big-time transfer, uh, uh, Gonzaga picking up a big-time transfer. Really fun show today. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is obviously the NFL draft, right? Um, and, you know, we, we did the big, bold kind of recap of round one on Friday's show. Talked about why I thought the Jets and the Lions were winners. Thought why I thought the Packers needed to draft a wide receiver, even though they took, took one in round two. 
And while I do think there were some interesting stories in rounds two through seven, the quarterbacks basically all falling. We had no quarterbacks in the second round. Uh, Malik Willis, Matt Corral, and Desmond Ritter all going in the third round. The fact, by the way, that Malik Willis was drafted by the Titans, you combine it with the A.J. Brown trade, which I talked about on Friday, maybe it means the Titans are starting to lose patience with Ryan Tannehill. But while I could just kind of just do a segment on Friday and uh, Saturday in the NFL draft, I don't think that's the right thing to do today, and let me explain why. It's because everybody else is going to do the winners and losers of the NFL draft, winners and losers of Friday and Saturday, Uh, draft grades, whatever. I don't think you can really do that, and I don't think it makes sense to do it for one simple reason. We simply don't know, and I know that kind of feels like a cop-out, but at the end of the day, at its most basic level, just think about it. I I mean, I could come on here today and say the Seahawks were definitively better than the Falcons on Saturday. And let me tell you why the Jaguars stole day three of the NFL draft. I could do that, but we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because if we knew who was going to be great out of the second and third day of the NFL draft, those guys would have been drafted in round one. It's easy three years later to say, oh, yeah, Cooper Cup. I mean, he was obviously undervalued in 2017. Well, if he was undervalued, why'd he fall in the third round? If everybody knew it, if it was so obvious, he wouldn't have. And so rather than do that, what I do think I want to do instead is I do want to look at the NFL draft from the college perspective because I do think we are now, with the NFL draft completed, we have an ability to really kind of step back and evaluate things from a college perspective based on the data that we now have, right? We now know which schools had the most draft picks this year, which schools had the fewest, which schools had none, which conferences had some, which schools set a school record, which school, which conference, you know, which school had the fewest, like whatever. And so I do believe that based on the NFL draft data that we got this weekend, we can not only look at it from a draft perspective, but we can look at it from a college perspective as well. Which colleges are on the rise? Which colleges overachieved last year? Which colleges underachieved last year? And what does it all mean for the future? So after the draft on Saturday, I came up with six things that I learned about college football through the 2022 NFL draft. Let's discuss those right now. The first thing I learned, I don't know if this 2021 National Championship Georgia team was the greatest team of all time or if they're even in the conversation. But what I do know, they may have had the best defense in recent college football history. So first of all, now that we're talking about Georgia, for maybe the final time ever, certainly about the final time about the 2021 dogs, let me say, how about my dogs? How about my dogs? Georgia had 15 picks in the 2022 NFL draft. That is an all-time record. In the history of the common draft era, the previous record, 14 picks by the 2004 Ohio State Buckeyes, 14 picks by the 2019 LSU Tigers in the 2020 NFL Draft. So we had never seen one college in one season produce more than 14 picks until this year with Georgia. Now, are they an all-time great team? I don't know if that's fair to say, and I'll tell you why. Usually when we talk about all-time great teams, we talk about dominance really on both sides of the football, right? What made that LSU team a few years ago so special was the talent that they had on offense with Joe Burrow, with Jamar Chase, with Justin Jefferson, with Clyde Edwards-Alaire, with all the talent that they had on defense, which was great as well. Caleb on Chase in round one. Uh, Grant Delpit was really good. I mean, you go on and on down the list. Uh, Patrick Queen was excellent off of that team. Derek Stingley was on that team. He just got drafted this year. 
And so I bring it up because that LSU team was historically great because they were great on both sides of the ball. The 2001 Miami Hurricanes. Listen, I know they had Ken Dorsey at quarterback, but when you have Willis McGahee, uh, 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 Andre Johnson, Jeremy Shockey, Frank Gore, Clinton Portis on your offense, that's an all-time great offense coupled with an all-time great defense led by Ed Reed, Vince Wilfork, Jonathan Vilma, etc. This Georgia team, I don't know if they're an all-time great team just because I don't know if offensively they were as dynamic as some of these other all-time great teams. It's no disrespect to Stetson Bennett, but they probably didn't have an NFL quarterback under center. And so when you didn't have an NFL quarterback under center, you relied on the run game, you whatever, you whatever, this, that. So I don't know if they're going to go down as an all-time great. What I do know is they had maybe the greatest defense that we've seen in like a decade plus in college football. I think one of the great defenses that we've seen, period. First of all, just the numbers from last year back it up allowed 10.2 points per game. Now, I do understand, gave up a lot against Alabama in that SEC championship game, but they obviously got their revenge against Alabama. And if you look at the 10.2 points per game allowed, in the modern era of college football, that is absolutely incredible. First of all, it's the fewest points allowed since Alabama in 2011, so fewest points allowed in a decade. But then on top of that, think about how much college football has changed in the last decade compared to what it is now with the spread offense, with the speed, with the tempo, with everything that is happening in college football, Georgia allowed 10.2 points per game, and that was reflected in this NFL draft where you had five Georgia players go in the first round, the first time ever we've seen five players off one defense go in the first round. Trevon Walker went number one overall, Jordan Davis went to the Eagles, Devontae Wyatt, Quay Walker went to the Green Bay Packers, and then finally, the last pick of the first round, Lewis seen a safety to the Minnesota Vikings, so five picks overall. This is how good the defense was. When we talked about how great this Georgia defense was, we never mentioned a guy named Trevon Walker who went number one overall. So you talk about a historically great defense, we didn't even talk about the number one overall pick Eight players total were drafted off of this defense, and I think what's especially worth noting, it's not as though they were all draft eligible. Just for fun, I went back and I looked at some of the early 2023 NFL mock drafts. You know who is pretty much universally going in the top 10? Two Georgia starters from last year on the defense. Keely Ringo, cornerback. Jalen Carter, linebacker. Neither was eligible for this draft. So you talk about an all-time great defense. Eight guys drafted. Five in the first round, number one overall, plus at least two are probably going to be taken in the first round, probably in the top 15 next year. So shout out to Georgia. How about my dogs? That is a great, historically great defense that we just saw this past season in college football. You know who wasn't historically great? How about the Texas Longhorns? So I don't know if you guys or girls saw this, but Texas had zero players drafted in the entire 2022 NFL draft. Zero players for a program that is in maybe the most talent-rich state in America, plus has the biggest boosters, best resources, best facilities, the most money pumping in. Zero players. As I just said, for comparison's sake, Georgia had 15 players drafted in the first round. First round. They had 15 players drafted overall. Texas had zero. And you can sit there and say, well, Georgia just has definitively better players. Well, I went ahead and looked it up, and that's not necessarily the case. Georgia in the, so let's look, so on Sunday, I actually tweeted this out, it got some traction. On Sunday, I went back and looked up the 2018 and 2019 high school football recruiting classes, okay, to compare Georgia to Texas, to compare the team that had 15 picks to zero. 
because ultimately the 2018 and 2019 high school classes are very important for a simple reason. Those were the guys that were juniors and seniors this year. And so I think the logical thought would be Georgia had 15 guys taken, Texas had zero. Texas probably just had a couple down years in recruiting. No. Georgia in 2018 had the number two, 2018 had the number one recruiting class in college football. In 2019, they had the number two recruiting class in college football. Texas in 2018 had the number three recruiting class in college football. In 2019, they had the number three recruiting class in college football. So you're talking about back-to-back top three classes produced zero players. Now, in their defense, they had three players taken last year. Some of those guys were from one of, uh, from that 2018 recruiting class. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about two th- top three classes producing zero draft picks, that is absolutely insane. And it doesn't even take into account when I look at Georgia, all 15 of the guys that were picked by Georgia were not from that 2018-2019 class, but most were. And on top of that, there's a couple other guys that were drafted last year as well from Georgia and a couple guys that actually were part of those Georgia classes that got drafted after transferring. So on top of Georgia having 15 guys drafted, never forget Jermaine Johnson, who was the guy that got drafted by the Jets in the first round, started his career at Georgia. Never forget last year, Justin Fields started his career at Georgia. So you're talking about between the 2018-2019 classes, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20-plus players that have been drafted by Georgia and that will be drafted by the end of next year. Texas had zero in this class, three last year. It is insane, and I cannot think of a single program in college football. I can't even think of anybody close to to wasting the talent that Texas has. Perfect combination of bad coaching, bad whatever, plus awful development. Zero players taken from back-to-back top three classes from Texas. That's inexcusable, and that's how you know that the Texas program is a mess as they went 5-7 and seven last year. I will say, while Texas was disappointing from the draft perspective, I think the combination of on-the-field product with the NFL draft, LSU is right behind. So here's a crazy stat for you. Here's a crazy stat. I just said Georgia set an all-time record, 15 guys selected in the NFL draft. That's the most all-time. You know who was number two? Wasn't Alabama. Wasn't Michigan who made the playoff. Wasn't Cincinnati who made the playoff. Wasn't Ohio State. It wasn't Clemson. It wasn't USC. It certainly wasn't Texas. wasn't Oklahoma. The number two most drafted players in the 2022 NFL Draft was the LSU Tigers. LSU finished with 10 total picks in the NFL Draft, second only to Georgia. And so while I don't think you can say they were more disappointing than Texas, Texas going 5-7 and seven in the Big 12, which isn't very good, LSU going 6-6 six and six with 10 guys that got drafted is pretty bad overall. And then never forget, it's not just the guys that got drafted but it's all the talent across that program throughout the last season. Never forget, there were guys much like Georgia that weren't even draft eligible this year that would have, that would be ver- that are very highly coveted NFL prospects. So maybe the top wide receiver in next year's class outside of Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio State is Kayshawn Boutte, my boy, love his name, who's at LSU, not even eligible this year. Top corner in next year's draft might be Eli Ricks, who transferred to Alabama from LSU this year. So you're talking about 10 guys that were drafted this year, including Derek Stingley, number three overall, plus two more that are probably going to go in the top 10 next year that were on LSU's roster. You talk about an utter waste of resources, an utter waste of talent. LSU isn't worse than Texas, but they're pretty darn close. 
It also makes me think three things definitively about LSU as we look ahead and look back on college football. One, I just told you, that 2019 LSU National Championship team had 14 players selected. This one had 10. So when you really look at it from an NFL draft perspective, the talent gap isn't that big. Now, obviously, LSU had five first-rounders that year, one first-rounder this year, so it's a little bit of a different deal. But the bottom line is, when I look back on that LSU team, it is becoming increasingly clearer. Joe Burrow and Patrick Queen might have just been the greatest leaders in the history of college football because 14 first-round picks that year, or again, not first-round picks, 14 picks that year leads to a national championship. 10 this year at LSU leads to a 6-6 and season. That tells me Joe Burrow was probably a pretty good leader. That tells me Joe Burrow, Patrick Queen, some of the other guys in that locker room did a good job of keeping guys in line in a way that did not happen after they left. Number two, what I would also say, it really does show Ed Orgeron is like a a historically great talent evaluator. Now, he's not a great head coach, um, but you look at all of the places that he's been. I mean, keep in mind, when he was at Ole Miss, he gets fired, and Houston not immediately has back-to-back 10-win seasons with the players that Ed Orgeron left. 2019, Ed Orgeron wins a national championship. 2020, obviously it's a COVID year, whatever. 2021, he goes 6-6 six and six with 10 guys that were drafted in the NFL, plus, again, a bunch others down the road that are going to be NFL players. You know what that says to me? I don't know that I'd hire Ed Orgeron as a head coach. As a matter of fact, I know I wouldn't. But if you could get him as a, in like a player personnel position, I would do that in half a second. I remember probably about a month ago, six weeks ago, I heard an interview with Ed Orgeron, and he was asked about, would you ever want to go back to LSU like as an assistant coach? And he said, I don't know about an assistant coach, but maybe, who knows? If I was Lincoln Riley, and we're going to talk about Lincoln Riley in a minute with the Jordan Addison thing. First call I'm making, hey, Coach O, you want to run my personnel department? You want to be the guy that evaluates high school players? You want to be the guy that evaluates transfers? Because I believe that Ed Orgeron, while he's not a great head coach, probably has as good of an eye for talent as anybody that I can ever remember in college football. Finally, my third takeaway within the LSU takeaway, this is why Brian Kelly wanted to come to LSU. This is why Brian Kelly left Notre Dame. This is why Brian Kelly decided to leave as the winningest head coach in the history of that program to go to LSU. Notre Dame, we know what the limitations are. I feel bad, but it's the reality. It's really hard to win a lot of games at Notre Dame with the academic requirements, the fact that it's a small Catholic school in the middle of the Midwest where there just isn't a lot of high school football talent. Now he can go to Louisiana, to a program that just produced 10 NFL draft picks in a down year? Give Brian Kelly some time, man. I really think this, to me, tells me Brian Kelly can build a national champion and a consistent playoff contender at LSU. I know he's not the cultural fit, whatever. Give that guy the talent that Coach O had, he's going to have success. My number four takeaway from the NFL draft via college football. I said all year that this was not a vintage Alabama team, and the NFL draft bore it out. Now, I'll say this. That's not a criticism of Alabama. That's not saying Nick Saban underachieved. It's not saying he's losing his fastball. But I said all year, I said this is not a vintage Alabama team, and the draft proved it out. They only, and I'm using only in air quotes because any, you know, 110 programs would love to only have two first-round picks, but Alabama only had two first-round picks this year. This after they set a record with six first-round picks a year ago. They had eight of the first 38 players off the board last year, six first-rounders in 2021, and in 2020, they had four first-rounders, five of the top 35. 
This year, they only had two first-rounders, Evan Neal to the Giants, and of course, Jamison Williams to the Lions, and overall, they only had six players drafted. So I told you all year, Alabama fans crush me. You don't know what you're talking about. I trust Coach Saban. And by the way, this might have been Nick Saban, one of Nick Saban's best coaching jobs. He gets his team to a national championship game, down John Mechie, his, best, his second best wide receiver. Jamison Williams, his best wide receiver, gets hurt. Jalen Armour Davis, a cornerback, is hurt. They have a couple O-linemen hurt. And he's still a couple plays away from winning a national championship. Don't, don't forget that despite what the final score was, Alabama had the lead in the fourth quarter against Georgia. Georgia wins the national championship. This was one of Nick Saban's best coaching jobs. I told you all year, this wasn't a vintage Alabama team, and it was proven out. But what I'll also tell you this, that was the anomaly because, again, I started looking at 2023 NFL mock drafts. Alabama's going to be back in a big way this coming season. Bryce Young's going top five. Will Anderson's going top three probably next year. Uh, Malachi Moore, a safety. Jordan Battle, a safety. Both guys projected to be early first-round picks. Eli Ricks, the cornerback, projected to be an early first-round pick, the transfer from LSU. So I hope you got your licks in on Alabama this past year. Really only Texas A&M. And uh, Georgia did. I know Auburn played them close. Arkansas played them close. Whatever. It ain't going to be easy against Alabama going forward. They're going to be loaded next year. But I told you all year, this was not a vintage Alabama team. And that bore itself out. Number five, the Pac-12. I want to talk about the Pac-12 really quick. Because the Pac-12 had, uh, I got, I, I'm losing the number right now. But what I've said about the Pac-12 for years is this. What I've said about the Pac-12 is the Pac-12 gets a bad rap. I don't think that the Pac-12 is the worst of the Power 5 conferences, even though they haven't had a playoff team in like five years. What I do think is that they haven't had that great program to kind of override the mess that the other programs are, right? Like I say it all the time. I think the Pac-12 is better across the board than the ACC. But the ACC has had Clemson at such an elite level for so many years, that doesn't really matter how good... um, you know, Syracuse is, or Boston College is, or Miami's down, or Florida State's down, or how good's NC State? Because Clemson's so good, it doesn't matter. It's been the same in the Big 12 with Oklahoma. Oklahoma's been carrying water for a lot of people, and I said the Pac-12 isn't as bad as you think. Just the problem is, is the fact that they don't have that great program that makes you realize, that makes you forget about all the crap at the bottom of the league. Maybe USC will be that. We'll talk about that coming up with Lincoln Riley here in a minute. At the same time, That bared out in the NFL draft with the numbers. Because while the SEC had by far the most draft picks, 65 overall, the Big Ten had 48, the Pac-12 was next with 25, tied with the Big 12 for the most, and the ACC with 21. And so I'm not sitting here defending the Pac-12. I'm not saying that the Pac-12 is as good as the SEC. But what I've said for years is the Pac-12 isn't as bad as you think. It's just they don't have that frontline program to make you forget about everybody else. I think USC is going to get there. We're going to talk about Lincoln Riley. He's doing some sketchy stuff. But I'm just telling you, I actually think that the Pac-12 is better than people give it credit for. That bore out with the same number of picks as the Big 12. Finally, we talked about Georgia being an all-time great defense. Let's give a little credit to the Cincinnati Bearcats. Nine players drafted overall, including... Sauce Gardner, who went uh, to the Jets in the the top 10. Desmond Ritter, the quarterback. Um, And what I would say is this. I'm not saying that Cincinnati is an all-time great team. That's not what I'm saying at all. But nine nine picks overall from a non-Power 5 team is the most for any non-Power Conference team since 1975. And so while 
Cincinnati clearly wasn't on the same level as Alabama, while Cincinnati would not have been able to hang with Georgia. What I can also tell you was, they were deserving of being in that playoff based on what they did, who they did it against, and who the competition was. Clemson wasn't great this year. Ohio State wasn't great this year. Uh, LSU, Texas A&M, USC, there was no other team that deserved to be in over them. And what I'm seeing, what I see, is that the talent at Cincinnati was kind of on par with everybody other than Georgia and Alabama. not saying that they were definitively better than LSU. I think LSU had better personnel. But you combine coaching, personnel, depth, experience, Cincinnati was right up there, man. Cincinnati ended up with more, for, more, more players taken than Ohio State, more players taken than Michigan, more players taken than Penn State, more players taken than Alabama, more players taken than Oklahoma. You go on and on down the list. There aren't very many programs who had more players taken than Cincinnati. As a matter of fact, it was simply LSU and Georgia. Credit to the Cincinnati Bearcats. So those are my six takeaways from this NFL draft. Georgia all-time great defense. Texas most underachieving team. LSU, I don't know what happened there. Uh, The Pac-12, Alabama was not as good as they've historically been. And then finally, shout out to Cincinnati. That's what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. And when I do, I want to talk about this crazy Jordan Allison story. So for people who have not seen Jordan Addison, I think I said just said Jordan Allison. Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikov winner as the best wide receiver in college football. He had a busy weekend. Lincoln Riley's in the headlines. It's complicated. You know those Facebook relationships? It's complicated. I don't even know if Facebook still does that. Nobody uses Facebook anymore. But it's complicated with Jordan Addison, USC, Pitt. We're going to discuss that all next. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. I do want to continue the conversation on college football, but go in a little bit of a different direction because, obviously, look, I just talked about the NFL draft. I talked about, um, you know, really what the NFL draft meant for a lot of college football programs, Georgia, Texas, I don't know, Cincinnati, Alabama, et cetera, LSU. I do want to actually hit an on-the-field topic, though, because we got a doozy of one on Friday night, and it's just, you know, to be clear, it's another one of these portal topics that I hate talking about and I hate complaining about, but Jordan Addison, arguably the top wide receiver in college football, did in fact, uh, you know, essentially he's sort of in the portal, he's not officially in the portal, but it appears he's going into the portal, and this is just the latest sign that Jordan Addison, that, that, that college sports as a whole, Jordan Addison unfortunately is the conduit to it. College football as a whole, college sports as a whole, college basketball as a whole simply cannot go on the way that it is. And so rather than just complain about it, I do want to talk about it. I do want to give you some details, but I also want to talk about what can be done, what can be fixed, because for the millionth time, I know I've talked about it a lot, Isaiah Wong on last show, we cannot keep going on like this. But let's give, me, let, let's give you the details right off the top. Jordan Addison might have been the top wide receiver in college football last year. Now, I don't know if he was the best wide receiver. Jamison Williams at Alabama was good. Chris Olave and, 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 you know, Jackson Smith and Jigba and Garrett Wilson were great at Ohio State. Traylon Burks was great at Arkansas. Um, but the guy who won the Bolitnikov for the best wide receiver in college football was a kid named Jordan Addison. 100 catches, almost 1,600 yards, 17 touchdowns, and alongside Kenny Pickett, those guys were a huge reason that Pitt had the success that they did winning the ACC championship. And so Jordan Addison was only a sophomore last year. We know you got to be three, remo- three years removed from high school to go to the NFL. 
And up until, oh, I don't know, about 5 p.m. Eastern on Friday, it seemed as though, I think I don't even think it was like 5 p.m., I think it was like 7, 8 p.m. It seemed as though Jordan Addison was good, he was going to come back, another year pit, then maybe if he has another good year, go to the NFL. Then we find out that he is seriously considering entering the transfer portal at, I don't know, about 8 p.m. Eastern time on Friday. Now, to be clear, again, the deadline to enter the portal was on Sunday, May 1st, you know, whatever time. And so we saw a lot of activity. And even at first glance, even at first glance, this just felt like kind of what happened with Isaiah Wong last year, last week. Is it one of those deals where he really wants to leave or is he just entering the portal just to let Pitt know, hey, you know, if you threw me a little bit more NIL money, I really wouldn't care that much. I wouldn't be upset if you threw me an extra 10 or 20K in NIL money. That was what we thought was going on about 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern time or so. And then later on in the night, we got a completely different version of the same story as ESPN, Pete Thamel, and also Bruce Feldman from The Athletic and Fox both put out an almost identical report saying that, yes, in fact, Jordan Addison may be the best wide receiver in college football. He is considering transferring. And USC has already been identified as the school that he would probably go to. Now, to be clear, they claim that it's because he has a pre-existing relationship with Caleb Williams, but to the rest of us who aren't reporting and aren't protecting sources, and I like Bruce and I like Pete Thamel, this isn't a criticism of him, but to the rest of us, we all saw it for exactly what it was. USC was tampering the crap out of this kid. And so this, to me, this might have been the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the conversation of college sports and where we are right now. Isaiah Wong on Friday, the kid from Miami that wants to go into the portal if he doesn't get a new NIL deal, that was the tip of the iceberg. And then this was the story that absolutely just was the Titanic just smashing into the iceberg. This was the story that made it clear that we could not go on the way we are and that we need real change. And I want to share with you some thoughts that I have going forward. Um, But when I, I look at this story, really to me, what I do think is point blank, bottom line, end of story, It's a lot of what I say on this show very regularly. Two things in life can be true. The transfer portal, NIL, they were put in place with the best of intentions. And I was not against either one. I wasn't in favor of the one-time transfer, but I had no fundamental issue with it. And at the end of the day, there are a lot of great reasons to transfer. New coach. Your coach got fired. It just doesn't work. You're changing the system. There's a new offensive coordinator. There are plenty of good reasons to transfer. You're homesick. You miss mom and dad. Um, You know, you you went 3,000 miles away and it didn't work out. There's a million good reasons to transfer. NIL was put into place also with the best of intentions. Come to campus. It doesn't make sense. Alabama has 100,000 people in the stadium and the guys on the field that everybody's coming to see are getting zero dollars. That doesn't make sense. So get Bryce Young some money. Get Will Anderson some money. Get Oscar Shibway at Kentucky some money. Get Hunter Dickinson at Michigan some money. But what it was never intended to be, what it was never intended to be, was players extorting their schools for more money like Isaiah Wong. And what it was certainly never intended to be was schools tampering with players, schools outright recruiting off other players' rosters, even though we know that's been going on, and then Four, five, six, ten schools with more money simply just going out and cherry-picking players off other people's rosters. And so I think that's why this one is so frustrating because it has all the elements of all of it. And what I think is especially frustrating is that it is the most obvious case of tampering that anybody has ever seen, and it doesn't appear as though anybody is going to do anything. 
if you follow the reports, Pete Thamel's report on ESPN said that Pat Narduzzi, the head coach at Pitt, oh, he called Lincoln Riley and gave him a piece of his mind. The question now becomes, is anything going to be done? Because this is not the first time that Lincoln Riley has been accused of this. And I love Lincoln Riley. I think he's great for USC, and I hope he gets USC back to where it can be. But at the same time, he was at Oklahoma last year. Arkansas is a great wide receiver. And all of a sudden, after spring ball, great spring, you know, number one target, Mike Woods. Oh, he just decides to go in the portal and go to Oklahoma. Arkansas fans, you remember you were not happy. And what you think at the time? That Lincoln Riley had something to do with it. That his staff had something to do with it. Oh, by the way, when Lincoln Riley left for USC, oh, Caleb Williams is at Oklahoma for a month before he decides to enter the portal. And Oklahoma fans were mad. Is he tampering with our guys? Could he, you know, if Caleb Williams was going to leave, why did he wait a month? Why did he wait so long? Why did he bring this guy with him? Why did he bring that guy with him? And so to me, when we start talking about what the next era of college football looks like, what the next era of college sports look like with a new president coming in, this to me has to be one of the things that changes, okay? So I understand, and guys, I'm not a, guys and girls, I'm not an idealist. I'm not a dreamer. I don't have my head in the clouds. I understand that there are certain things that are going on in college sports right now that cannot change because of things bigger than college sports. You cannot change NIL. You cannot limit what players can make, okay? I understand that. There, there's, there's like Supreme Court laws. Like Now, I do think, and we're going to have, by the way, my buddy Dan Lust, the lawyer, uh, he's going to come on this week and talk to us a little bit about what can be done by the NCA, and maybe there can be federal oversight, so maybe it's not a state-by-state -state thing. So I understand that there, you really can't stop NIL. We're not going back to a day where players just play for room and board. Like, that's just not happening, okay? You also can't stop the transfer stuff. We're not going back to a world where you have to sit out for one year if you decide to transfer. But the one thing that the NCAA can enforce, the one thing that the NCAA can stop is tampering because it's involving their players, it's involving the coaches, and you don't even have to punish the player. If Jordan Addison wants to go there, that's fine. But if you can prove that Lincoln Riley, anybody on his staff, had any contact with anybody from Jordan Addison's camp, suspend Lincoln Riley. Suspend him for a game. Suspend him for two games. Suspend him for six games. Give him a scholarship reduction. That's the only way that we are going to stop some of this nonsense. I understand we can't stop everything. But we can't bury our head in the sand either. And again, for the millionth time, this is what my frustration was with Mark Emmert. He literally didn't have an answer for anything. And so to me, this feels like one thing that you can't stop. You might not be able to stop NIL. You might not be able to go back to a world where players have to sit out if they want to transfer. But if you know a coaching staff is reaching out to a player or representatives, punish that guy. Get him in trouble. Make him sit out. Make him be away from the program. Because that's the only way we're going to get this stuff cleaned up. And so to me, I will say, I know I just said I'm not a, 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 an overly optimistic guy. I'm not a dreamer. I'm not unrealistic. But I do hope that this is one of the ways that, that we can just get our arms around this. I'm not asking to go back to 1940 and guys are playing for room and board. I think a lot of these changes have been good for the sport of college football and the sport of college basketball. And at the very least, it has certainly made it more entertaining, right? I love the transfer portal. It's really interesting. When we come back from the break, I'm going to talk about some transfer portal stuff. Janae Broom, Efton Reed, all that good stuff. But at the same time, there have to be some rules. There have to be some guardrails. It can't just be this chaos 365 days a year all the time. I think I've used this example on this show, but if, and if I have, forgive me for repeating it over and over. Ice cream's really good. 
There's a reason you parents out there don't let your kids eat ice cream every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not good. Ice cream's good, but you have to have some rules. There's got to be some broccoli in there at some point, right? There's got to be some carrots. There's got to be some veggies. Bring an apple. There's a reason they give you orange slices at the end of a baseball game. There's got to be rules. There's got to be regulations. There's got to be something, and I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think this is one, though, because a lot of you said, Torres, all you ever do is complain, and I get it. I get that I get whiny sometimes, but it's because it's almost like the Nick Saban thing, right? Like Nick Saban says, is this really what we want for college sports? And some people are like, oh, he's afraid of the future. Nick Saban dominates every version of college football that he's a part of. He genuinely cares about the present and future of college football and college athletics as a whole. Dabo Sweeney, you can criticize him a lot. He cares about the future of college football as a whole. And I feel like I do the same. And so to me, this feels like one thing that can be changed. This feels like one thing that can be addressed that's tampering, that's coaches on a coaching staff reaching out to players in the portal. And by the way, maybe you can't prove it on Lincoln Riley, but I guarantee you can probably prove it on somewhere else. I guarantee there's somewhere, somewhere along the way you can prove that this coaching staff got this guy out by, by tampering. And so to me, I think this is one of the things that has to be addressed. And I do hope that as time goes on, this stuff does figure out a way to rein itself in and kind of get under control, right? I do think that there is something to the fact that we had two major, 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 major rule changes, two major rule changes that came together at the same time that created side effects that we could have never imagined. The one-time transfer and name image likeness coming together, it created all this chaos that we could have never seen coming. I do hope that as we get further along, as we start to wrap our arms around it, as we start to see the pluses and minuses which we've talked about, as we get new leadership in, that in some ways this can be addressed. I did see my buddy Colin Cowherd. I thought he brought up a good tweet that I thought reflected hope that we can eventually wrap our arms around this. Somebody tweeted this, and this is what Colin responded. Somebody tweeted, Jordan Addison is getting the same amount of guaranteed money to play for USC as George Pickens for being a second rounder of the Steelers. Tell me how this is good or even sustainable for college football or even the NFL. And what Colin said, and I hope he's right, and he's, you know, Colin's really plugged in. He talks to agents, ADs, etc. all the time. Colin said, fair point, and it's probably not sustainable. But today, in this brief moment, it's a mad dash for elite talent. The most aggressive recognize this and are taking advantage of a small window. So I am trying to be optimistic, and I am trying to hope that this is, in fact, a small window that we somehow can wrap our arms around it, that it somehow doesn't just become exactly what I said. Players spending all of April and May extorting their schools for money, uh, you know, coaches tampering with other schools' players, all of the things that we don't like about NIL and Transfer Portal, I hope we can figure out a way to wrap our arms around some of it. And I'm optimistic that, frankly, maybe we will, but right now this is really, really, really bad. With that said, I'm going to take a quick break. I am going to come back, and I'm going to talk about a little college hoops. We got some news that Jay Lucas, uh, the top assistant coach, not the top, but one of the elite assistant coaches in college basketball, uh, he is leaving Kentucky and going to Duke, so that's certainly interesting. And then also on top of that, uh, we'll talk actually a little portal, because there was some portal news in basketball as well. Janae Broom going to Auburn. Keontae Johnson, how about him? Remember him going to, uh, going to uh, hit the portal? We'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. 
Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. Good to be back. Do want to wrap with a little bit of college hoops because obviously this has been a big football show. We talked about the NFL draft, what it means for schools like Georgia, Texas, LSU, Alabama, etc. And then on top of that, we also talked about this. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this Jordan Addison deal. But I do think there was really some college basketball news that really did kind of, a, you know, kind of, there was some college basketball stuff that happened over the last two days since the Friday episode that does need to be addressed. So we'll talk some portal stuff in a minute. But I do want to start in the coaching ranks where really kind of a very important story broke uh, midday Friday as Jay Lucas, widely regarded as one of the bright young assistant coaches in all of college basketball, 33 years old, spent, spent a bunch of years at Texas, helped Shaka Smart build up that program, has spent the last two years at Kentucky. He announces that he is leaving Kentucky for, drumroll please, he's leaving for Duke. He's leaving for Duke. So Kentucky loses one of the best young assistant coaches in all of college basketball, and even worse, they lose him to maybe the worst possible school. Now, I guess you could argue that maybe losing him to Louisville with Kenny Payne would be worse. But in terms of losing a guy to another school, you don't want to use a young, dynamic recruiter who relates well with young people, has helped you sign some of the best players in high school basketball. You don't want to lose him to the school that you most compete with in recruiting and the school that, frankly, has had the most success recruiting against you, which is Duke. Tough, tough, tough day for Kentucky, and there really is no other way to put it. It is another black eye for John Calipari in what has become really about a 24-month period where it has been one black eye after another. Disappointing regular season in 2020. Disappointing NCAA tournament loss in Sa to St. Peter's. The Shaden Sharp fiasco, which we've discussed. Now you lose one of the bright young recruiters and assistant coaches in college basketball to one of your biggest rivals. Now, in terms of what happened, well, I'll tell you this. First of all, if you don't follow me on Instagram, I did do a quick video post. Make sure you're following at uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. I did do a quick video post because a lot of you were asking me about it in real time when it happened, and essentially my, my thought on it was pretty straightforward, and to really explain what I think happened, how I think it went down, you really got to go back a few months. During the season, uh, Kentucky, in the middle of the season, there was this incident on the sidelines in which John Calipari got into it with one of his other assistant coaches, a guy by the name of Chin Coleman. Really well-respected, another guy that's a great recruiter, great relationship builder, really well-respected in the industry of college basketball. And so when that happened, uh, you know, not that day, but a week or two later, I'm talking to somebody that really knows John Calipari well. And I sat there and, and, and I asked him, I said, what, what happened with Chin? Is, is everything cool? Do they not like each other? What's going on? And what my buddy told me, he's been around Cal. He knows Cal, knows a ton of people who's worked with Cal. He goes, Cal just has his way of doing things. When you come in, this is not a collaborative, this is not Google, this is not open workspace, this is not everybody shares their opinions on every single topic. That's not a criticism of John Calipari, that's not a knock of John Calipari, but he has a certain way of doing things, and he's been doing that. He's been doing things his way for 30 years. I know there's been you know some bad PR over the last 24 months, but for the most part, his way has worked. And so there are a lot of coaches that have worked under him long enough to kind of understand that. Orlando Antigua right now, obviously Kenny Payne, the current Louisville head coach who worked under him for years. There's a lot of guys that just kind of understand how Calipari operates. But if you're new or if you're looking for something that is, you know, anything like like if you're looking for collaborative and my opinion matters and this and that and I have a say in this and that, 
Kentucky's just probably not the place for you, and John Calipari is not the, not the head coach to work for. Again, that's not a criticism. It's just a fact. And so why I bring it up, I don't know Jay Lucas personally. I've never met him. I hear great things. I've talked to parents who love him. But I bring it up because when I heard this Jay Lucas story, I couldn't help but think about that Chin Coleman story. I couldn't help but think that realistically what probably happened was this, was that Jay Lucas, he was at Kentucky for two years. Everything's going fine. He's doing his part. He's bringing in his players. But probably as time goes on, he wants to become a head coach. I mean, he's in his early to mid-30s. He's probably looking for the next step and the next opportunity to be a head coach. And I think when you come to Kentucky and when you're under John Calipari, what ends up happening is, I don't want to say you necessarily get pigeonholed in a certain way as a recruiter, as a Texas guy, or as a this or as a that. But I think what he was probably looking at is, I think the better spot for me right now is to go to Duke. My next real step in my career is to become a head coach, and I'll probably get to do more stuff at Duke than I will under John Calipari at Kentucky. If I stay at Kentucky, you know this. I, I know how it's going to be done. If I go to Duke, I'm working for a young head coach, first-time head coach, never been a head coach before. It's probably, to use the word that I used a minute ago, it's going to be more collaborative. I'm going to be more involved. I'm going to have more of a say in things. I'm going to have more of a say in which players we recruit, how we offer them, when we offer them, what time we offer them, uh, how practices run. John Shire seems to be probably more open to outside ideas than John Calipari will do. Again, doesn't mean John Calipari's bad, doesn't mean John Shire's good. It's just a fact, and that would be my guess as to why Jay Lucas decided to make this decision. At the end of the day, he's young, wants to be a head coach. He did his two years at Camp Calipari, and now it's time to see how other things are done and really take the next step and develop and evolve as a coach and not just as a recruiter. Now, in terms of what it means in the bigger picture, I'll say a couple things. I think, one, it's obviously a huge win for Duke. And I'll say this about John Shire. Like, I know we want to crush Duke and make fun of Duke, and Duke stinks, and they're the worst, and blah, 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 and this and that, and whatever. What I can tell you is I, I, I've talked to a few people that have really been around John Shire. Another guy I'm not going to claim that I know, claim that I have great insight into, but I, I've talked to people that have been in interviews with him, that have been around him. They say he's a real dynamic guy. He relates well to young people, old people, kids, parents, African-American, white, whatever. Um, you know, And you look at his track record as a recruiter, it reflects that. I think a lot of people thought when Jeff Capel left Duke, that Duke was really going to struggle to sign those elite players, John Shire delivered. And not only did John Shire deliver, as we discussed a few weeks ago, you could argue Duke recruiting has gotten better since John Shire has taken over. And so to me, this is obviously a huge win for Duke because you're bringing in another elite recruiter and what is a young coaching staff, but what will be a very dynamic coaching staff. I think they're going to be aggressive. I think they're going to be fearless on the recruiting trail. I think Duke's going to continue to recruit at a level that nobody else does that Kentucky doesn't recruit at, that Arkansas doesn't recruit at, that UCLA doesn't recruit at, that Arizona doesn't recruit at. I just think that's the facts of the world in college basketball right now. Right now, Duke's recruiting at a level like nobody else. As I've discussed many times, just landed the number one class in 2022. They basically have their 2023 class locked up, five top 30 players, depending on what service you look at, five five stars, at the least four, four, four five stars with a four star involved. They're recruiting at a level, I don't know if you can ever say anybody in college basketball has ever recruited at. It's a reflection of John Shire and what he's trying to do at Duke. Will it work? Is he a great coach? I don't know. We're going to find out. But I do think 
that when I look at this entire situation, it's clear what he wants to be and what he wants Duke to be. I don't want to say it got old and stale and boring with Coach K because it didn't, but that's what I think he wants. I think he wants young, aggressive, fearless, dynamic, and I think it's going to be great for Jay Lucas as a place for him to learn, for him to grow, for him to evolve as, a, as an assistant coach to eventually become a head coach. And I'll tell you this, you talk about a soft landing spot. One, Duke offers your listening as a player. And then two, as I just said, they already got their 2023 class wrapped up, so they can already start recruiting the high school sophomores right now, the class of 2024. From Kentucky's perspective, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no way to make it sound better than it is. This is a big time, big time L for John Calipari. You have a young assistant coach that relates really well with young players that helped you sign some of the players that are in your program right now. Damian Collins, a McDonald's All-American. Severe Wheeler, a transfer from Texas. Kaysen Wallace, a McDonald's All-American this year. All those guys are there in large part because of the recruitment of Jay Lucas. Now, it's not to say it's only Jay Lucas because all of them are going to stay at Kentucky. They're going to be back at Kentucky. But I don't think that you can dismiss the role that Jay Lucas played in their recruitments either. He clearly had an impact on some of the guys in the program. C.J. Frederick tweeted out basically a crying emoji on uh, whatever it was Friday, reflecting that these guys are bummed that he's leaving. So for John Calipari, I do think you probably got to go pretty young in this one, right? John Calipari's on the other side of 60. Orlando Antigua, I really respect as a recruiter, a relationship developer. We talked a lot about him last year. But Orlando Antigua, you know, he's, he's closing in on 50 years old. Uh, Chin Coleman is another guy that's, you know, in his 40s. And so I look at these guys, it doesn't make them bad recruiters, but Jay Lucas was young and a guy that connected really well with high school players. So there really is no other way to put it. Um, it's not to say that, that you know, things are going to, you know what, for Kentucky. It's not to say they'll never sign a five-star again, but it's just another ding in the Calipari resume. Again, you look at last year, 2020, worst regular season in Kentucky basketball history. 2021, you lose to St. Peter's. You lose Shaden Sharp, potentially the number one, not potentially, the number one high school player in the class of 2022. He's never going to play a minute for you. Now you lose a young assistant coach. It is not ideal. Quickly rip through some of the transfer portal news and notes here. Uh, heading into that transfer portal deadline, probably the biggest story, um, probably the biggest story in college, uh, college basketball how about those Auburn Tigers? Auburn coming through with a really big commitment on Saturday afternoon as Auburn got a commitment from the, I, I, I had him as a top five player in the portal, Janae Broom. For people who are not familiar, he was the kid from Moorhead State. I've talked about him a little bit uh, here over the last couple weeks, but Janae Broom was a top five player in the portal. He was, I believe, maybe the best big man in, in the portal, and he commits to Auburn over the University of Florida. Mega, mega, mega win for Bruce Pearl. In terms of who he is, six foot ten, great shot blocker. For Auburn fans listening, he's not Jabari Smith. Jabari Smith is was able to put the ball on the floor, shoot from 25 feet, hit threes. He's also not Walker Kessler. He's kind of a, more of a power low post player. He's not a finesse guy. He's not a this guy. He's not a that guy. He is a, a catch the ball, throw it in your face, and embarrass you. But I think the stats speak for themselves. 17 points per game, 11 rebounds, and how about this? Four blocks per game on the way to being the Ohio Valley player of the, or defensive player of the year, excuse me, in that conference for Moorhead State. 
I think he is one of the few guys. I am not always a big fan of mid-major players transferring up to a high major level. But he's one I think he's going to, I don't think he's going to miss a beat. Will it take a week, a month, whatever? Maybe. I think once the season starts, he's going to be good to go because he's got the size, he's got the length, he's got the measurables. Shot blocking is all about timing. And he's got the physicality to match up. He doesn't need to put on weight. He doesn't need to work on foot speed. Like, like he is going to be ready to play from day one. So mega win for Bruce Pearl. And as I get set to reshake up my top 25, I think Auburn's right back in the mix as a top 15 or so type team. This is a team that has already added one of the top high school players in the country, Johan Treore, who was committed to LSU. He decommitted when Will Wade left. Now, all of a sudden, Johan Treore is going to Auburn. And I would say, like, I I know the Auburn guards took a lot of heat last year because of what happened with Jabari Smith. I think they probably took so much heat. Everybody complained about them so much that they're probably not quite as bad as you remember. So Auburn, I believe, is a top 15 team. Janae Broom committing to Auburn over the weekend. Another big commitment, another another really solid player, uh, Efton Reed. I just talked about LSU, Will Wade, he left, all that good stuff. Um, he didn't leave, he got fired. But Efton Reed was a big guy, played at LSU last year, and on Sunday, drumroll please, he commits to Gonzaga. And I'll say this about Gonzaga. So it, Gonzaga's really sort of an interesting team because obviously number one seed, underachieved, lost in the the Sweet 16 to Arkansas in the NCAA tournament. That's not a criticism of Arkansas, but when you're the number one seed, that is a game that you're supposed to win. And it was just another ding on Mark Few's resume. What's been interesting about Gonzaga, though, is that, as best I can tell, it's been a pretty quiet offseason. Drew Timmy declared while testing the waters. Uh, Chet Holmgren and Andrew Nemhard declared they're leaving, but we were expecting that. And so Drew Timmy and Julian Strother are two guys that are testing the waters, but both are expected back. And so if they're expected back, uh, Gonzaga hasn't lost anybody to the transfer portal in terms of leaving there, and they hadn't picked up anybody. They have no high school players signed, and so they were essentially going to essentially run back the team that they had last year, minus Chet Holmgren and minus Andrew Nemhart. Now, I think that team would have been fine, but is that a team good enough to win a national championship? I don't know. Well, now they go ahead and add Efton Reed. I think he'll be a really good player for them. He's a former McDonald's All-American, seven feet, uh, not super athletic, not super skilled, but I think he's going to be really good in that league, in that program, and you know that they're going to develop him and get the best version of him going forward. Now, what I think is especially interesting, does that have some kind of ulterior meaning as it pertains to Drew Timmy? You sign a big guy out of the portal. Does a big guy want to come if he thinks Drew Timmy is going to be back? I don't know. Um, but I do wonder if that means that maybe they're they're planning on a future where Drew Timmy is not there and decides to stay in the NBA draft. I will look into that. I have no idea if that's actually the case or not, but that was kind of my first thought when I saw that. So Efton Reed, former five-star, former McDonald's All-American, commits to Gonzaga. I think that's really it from the portal news. Now, what I will say is, like I said, Players had to have their names in the portal by midnight Eastern on Sunday, which means that, or have at least have written notification to their school that they plan on transferring. Why do I bring it up? It is because come Monday and Tuesday, we're probably going to learn about some guys that end up in the portal that we are not aware of, strictly because we did not find out that they had written word to their school. So I bring it up to say over the next couple days, we'll probably get more word on more players in the portal, but it was actually a pretty quiet deadline, all things considered. 
I think everybody saw the money that Miami was handing out last week with uh, with Nigel Pack, Isaiah Wong. And I think a lot of players hit the portal just to see what their options were. But Saturday and Sunday were actually pretty quiet as far as the portal was concerned. With that said, I do think it is finally time for me to get out of here. Long, fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast today. If you are not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, by the way, what are you doing? Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. As I told you, uh, if you're not following on Instagram, I'm doing some videos over there, so make sure you're following over there. And also make sure you're following on YouTube, a lot of good content there. But that is all for today's show. It is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday. Great new episode on Wednesday of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I'll see you, people. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.